This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your chosen podcast feed every Thursday. And to dig deeper into a particular topic, head to the podcast page of the English Heritage website where you can explore our themed collections. And collections is the subject of today's episode, as we discover how Audley End House in Essex became home to a diverse collection of natural history specimens and curiosities dating back to the 19th century. So how are these items found, delivered and stored? And who are their collectors? Well, peering into the display cases for us are English Heritage Curator of Collections and Interiors, Dr Peter Moore, and archivist of the nearby Sedgwick Museum of Earth Sciences, Sandra Jane Freshney. Hello, good to be here. Hi, Charles. Peter, for people who don't know Audley End House, can you acquaint our listeners with the property? Where is it and what is it and why is it the setting for this episode? Yes, well, Audley End House is a fairly large country house in the northwest corner of the county of Essex, and it was built in the early 17th century on the site of a former Benedictine monastery. And although I think if you visited today, you might think it looked like a pretty substantial place, it was originally three times its present size, and for a while it was even used as a royal palace by King Charles II. But then years of neglect led to a partial disrepair And in the early 18th century, some parts were demolished. However, fairly soon after that, there was a pretty remarkable revival, I think. And during the second half of the 18th century, the house was uh, fully refurbished and the interiors were lavishly restored. And then in 1797, it was inherited by a man called Richard Neville. And at the same time, he gained the title the second Baron Braybrook. And he remained at Audley End until 1820, when he decided, very generously, I think, to retire to another family property so that his son Richard, who had just got married to his wife Jane, could move into Audley End and put down roots and make it their family home. And that they did, wasting absolutely no time at all and having eight children over the course of the next 10 years. And it's during this 19th century heyday that Audley End was an extremely lively, a very sociable place. And Richard and Jane were this very kind of gregarious couple at the heart of it highly intellectual people and with a keen shared interest in natural history, amassing a large collection of specimens, which is what we're here to talk about today. Absolutely. Can we find out a bit more about the family behind this natural history collection at the house? Um, You you mentioned the Nevilles, aka Braybrooks as well. Mm. Um, Who are this family? What did they do? And why did they get interested in collecting? Well, Richard and Jane had both come from a very kind of aristocratic backgrounds. Richard's family, the Nevilles, came from a large house called Billingbear in Berkshire with a very kind of long and illustrious history. And Jane was from the Cornwallis family who had substantial estates in Suffolk, Broomhall and Colford Hall. So they'd grown up in this kind of environment of houses full of fine furniture, paintings, decorative arts and books. And that's the kind of property they moved into at Audley End. All of these kind of objects and things you'd expect to find in a large country house were already there. And in fact, they brought even more of these kinds of collections from um, the other family properties I've mentioned. So it was really already full, actually, but they wanted to put their own stamp on it and create an environment, I think, that expressed their personalities and their interests, um, which I think is why they began to collect all manner of natural specimens, which they could then arrange and display as they wanted for their own pleasure. And also, crucially, I think, for the enjoyment of their friends and visitors. And natural history was also a subject that 
they encouraged their children to take an interest in too. Particularly their eldest son, who was also called Richard, he was so taken with it that he created an absolutely enormous collection of taxidermy. He was particularly interested in birds, and there are thousands and thousands of avian specimens. In the house? Absolutely, yeah, in in large cases all through the house. So this was even before he'd inherited Audley End. He was he was living there with his parents. He he suffered from ill health throughout most of his life and, and died fairly young. But even before he inherited Audley End and, and the title Baron Braybrook, he was there with his parents. They were indulging in this fascination of natural history and he was kind of taking on parts of the house and filling it with his collections too. So it really was a kind of shared family activity they were doing here. Fascinating. They should have been called the Attenboroughs, perhaps. Um, <laughs> what kind of things then did uh, Richard and Jane Neville collect? Um, you obviously mentioned the birds, which were the son's interest, but um, did the parents have any particular interest? Yeah, it was a really um, incredibly varied range of things they collected. So it included shells, uh, fossils, rocks and minerals, archaeological finds, plant and animal specimens, all sorts of other objects that fit into kind of miscellaneous categories and can only really be described as natural curiosities. And they also collected many books and all sorts of literature on these different subjects to assist with their learning. So I, I like to kind of put it simply that they were interested in life on planet Earth in all its shapes and forms. So people, places and cultures, past and present, different civilizations, plants and animals, the physical properties of the Earth itself. And I suppose nowadays we might identify a range of more nuanced but related scientific disciplines here. For example, geology, archaeology, paleontology, zoology, biology or anthropology. But in the 19th century, this idea of natural history or natural philosophy encompassed all of these things. And another interesting facet that I think is useful to note is that there was also a recognised religious and theological context for the study of natural history at the time. So many popular texts often link the subject to an appreciation of godly creation. And we don't know for certain whether Richard and Jane's interest in natural history was founded in a similar philosophy or theology, but I think it's quite possible. So it's naturalism, broadly speaking, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I've always think that's worth explaining when I say natural history. It's um, yeah, it's, it's a massive area. Um, yeah, Just much- the, the overarching sort of subject that from which you have all these other separate sciences that gradually develop you know, fundamentally. Absolutely. They become much more kind of streamlined as separate acadis- academic disciplines you know, through time. Mm. And were they interested in botany as well? Because I think you missed that one off the list. Yes, I did. I, thank you. I did miss it off the list. They, they did um, have an interest in botany. And there's an amazing herbarium, so a collection of dried and pressed plants and flower specimens in the house. A really remarkable collection that we're only just really beginning to research. So I suppose listeners are probably wondering now, how did they collect all these items? Were they big travellers or did they depend on imports of some kind or did they have friends who were travellers? Or All of the above, I'd say. And I think it's good you mentioned travel because they certainly did do a lot of travelling throughout the United Kingdom. And you know, that's something that a lot of aristocratic people were doing more frequently at this point in the 19th century. And the process of discovery involved in this kind of travel, obtaining specimens and the sense of adventure that went with it, I think that was a massive appeal for Richard and Jane. And then documenting the items when they brought them back to Audley End was also an important activity, particularly, it seems, for Jane, who applied little handwritten labels to hundreds of the objects. So, for example, it's thanks to her that we know they acquired 
um, an assortment of shells on a trip to Scheveningen in the Netherlands in 1829. There's a little dish of these shells and her label recording that. And then, for example, another object is a piece of bark, which she's attached a label to, saying that it came from one of the largest and oldest oak trees in the country in Calthorpe during a tour of Yorkshire in 1838. And she also kept travel diaries, and these are really vital to help us get a sense of where and when some of the other items were collected. So those examples are slightly further afield, but closer to home. I think digging for specimens offered a great excitement for them. So, for example, in 1832, Richard unearthed a mammoth tusk and bones in Audley End Village. And there's a really amazing letter in the archives where he records this news and shares it with academics at Cambridge University who he invites to come and see the find and also invites them to come and have dinner at Audley End. So the social activity around the collecting seems to have been very important. And actually it created a, a kind of gift exchange. So there are other specimens which are gifted from people. So another example going back to one of the things we were just talking about, the um, herbarium, there are plant specimens in there recorded as being given by John Henslow, who was a botanist at Cambridge University and also a friend and mentor of Charles Darwin. And another hint of this kind of academic friendship is in the library. So there's a copy of Adam Sedgwick's lectures, The Eminent Geologist, and this is inscribed to Lady Jane from Sedgwick himself. And I think we're going to hear a bit more about some of these men associated with Cambridge University from Sandra later on. Yes, of course, because Sandra works at the, uh, or, or does some work at the Sedgwick Museum, which is um, nearby. So we will get on to that. But you talked about domestic um, acquisitions there. Were there also international ones? Certainly when it came to taxidermy, and I mentioned the bird collections, there are birds and animals from all over the world. Shells as well came from all different places and, and corals. And if we kind of branch out and think of ethnography or those types of items as part of this there are certainly things that relate to other cultures from pacific islands and we've spoken in a previous podcast about indigenous american material and i think for them those kind of things that relate to different cultures and people really fit into the equation as well they see them as part of this complete collection how does this uh, complete collection get displayed across the house i suppose in the 19th century when the nevilles are around and doing their collecting how many rooms are sort of dedicated to display cases and, uh, you know, this sort of thing? The collections were displayed quite widely throughout the house and, and still are. Richard and Jane's son, Richard, who we've already mentioned, he actually created a museum room within the house. And unfortunately, that doesn't survive. A lot of the archaeology collections associated with the museum room are now in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. But other things that were in that space are now dispersed throughout the house. Larger pieces from Richard and Jane's collection were put on open display, like large conch shells or big corals placed on top of cabinets, or and there are these amazing enormous oak and walnut burrs, which look kind of like meteorites or something. They're very sculptural and they're placed on top of marble tables. And even today, they're a real talking point when people walk around the house and they wonder what these enormous things are. But smaller items were placed in special cabinets that they had made. And these have glazed doors with shelves arranged in banks to create a kind of pleasant and easy viewing experience. And two of these large cases that are particularly important to note are placed in the Great Hall. And I think deliberately so. It's a very public space compared to other parts of the house. And it's therefore a very prime location for Richard and Jane to show off specimens to visitors. Um, And one final case that I thought would be nice to mention is 
a little cabinet that they put in their children's schoolroom. And this was essentially a learning space just off the nursery suite. Sadly, no longer exists in that form today, but we have the case that we know was placed in that in that room. And you can really see the signs of use and wear and tear on it, which suggests it was very well used, I think, and, and much loved. And it gave the children the opportunity to start their own mini collection, which I think is really lovely and quite relatable as I have this idea that children even today have a kind of innate urge from a very young age to collect and organise things. Certainly my children like to do that and I think a lot of others do. So it's really sweet that they gave them their own case to do that. Yes, it sounds similar to what we covered um, at Osborne with uh, Queen Victoria's children having their own collection in the Swiss cottage there at the property on the Isle of Wight. So um, can you give us a sense of how many display cases there are across the property? Oh, goodness. I mean, if you include the taxidermy cases, you've got probably about 50 or 60 already. I don't know, maybe 100, all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I mean, this could range from a massive case like I was talking about to like a small plinth with a glass dome over the top. If you walk around and really look out for these things, you really get the sense that it absolutely kind of encompasses everything. It pervades every every part of the house. Yeah. Mm. And are there some behind the scenes as well that the visitors wouldn't see? Well, today there are some items which maybe because of condition or vulnerability to, you know, exposure to different conditions, they're kept in store for conservation reasons. But not that many. Most of them are out on display still, which I think is, is really amazing. So, you you know, you get more or less the same experience that you would have done back in the 19th century. And how many individual objects do you think they had? Well, we're still cataloguing and documenting these specimens, but I think they are in the region of about 6,000 individual items. And about 4,000 of those fall into this broad category of geology, rocks and minerals, and I'm kind of including shells and fossils in that as well. So I think that was clearly a very key focus for their collecting. Okay, so let's understand now this this the history, how, how it all started. And a collection has to start inevitably with one item. Do we know from the records which one was the first? We can't be absolutely sure because not everything is dated or listed. But I have a pretty good idea of what one of the earliest objects is, or actually two objects. And these are two little mineral specimens displayed together, and they both have identifying labels on them, which date to 1832. And one is a piece of porphyry, and the other is a piece of jasper agate. And these labels are handwritten by Jane. We know this because she kept diaries and were able to compare handwriting, so we're pretty certain this is her writing. And the labels note that they were picked up in Scarborough, and she found the porphyry, and Richard found the agate. And I have this kind of romantic vision in my head of them walking along the shore together in Scarborough, seeing who could find the best specimen to start off the collection. But what I really like about these particular objects is that they've been left on one side in their completely natural state. And then if you turn them over, the other side is polished flat, like a beautiful, shiny um, surface, perfectly smooth. And to me, I think that shows that while on the one hand, they're really interested in these items as kind of untouched geological specimens. They're also interested in their aesthetic beauty and the potential of these objects to be transformed into a kind of decorative art. Yes. Can you describe porphyry and agate and what they look like? Yeah, well, the side that hasn't been polished looks quite dull. They're both a kind of deep red, kind of maroon colour, particularly the porphyry. And if you turn it over, you still still get this 
deep red maroon color but even more strongly and it's got little flecks of white through it and this material is used very often for decorative vases and pedestals it's a bit like marble the jasper agate is more kind of varied in the in the color and patination but really beautiful but like i say the porphyry i think is something that if you've been to you know lots of country houses with fine decorative arts you would have seen or be more familiar with in that context than seeing it as its raw state let's bring in sandra now to talk about this wider context sandra there's a lot of sort of amateur collecting taking place between this couple richard and jane neville was this sort of a vogue thing at the time Yeah, I mean, as Peter says, you know, natural history is such a massive area. And there's been a sort of collecting precedence, really, since the sort of 16th century, really, where you had cabinets of curiosities, people displaying rocks and fossils and minerals and plants. So it's quite a sort of common thing for quite a long period of time. And amateurs, of course, are not tied down by any kind of academic appointments, etc. So it was very fashionable um, for gentlemen, particularly to sort of display items and to give them away as well. So you've got people like John Ruskin, the famous sort of Victorian polymath, who would give specimens to the British Natural History Museum. So it's quite a sort of common kind of hobby, if you like. And the wider context, I suppose, is really by the mid-18th century, it becomes a lot more acceptable to start questioning the age of the earth and studying the earth or the history of the earth from a scientific perspective without necessarily the sort of religious preconceptions that there may have been before. So there's there's much more an emphasis on classifying. As Peter said, you've got these sort of emerging specialisms at this time with sort of explaining and labelling and cataloguing the natural world. So it's sort of, yeah, it's in vogue, it's happening, but there's a lot more going on as well. You've got places like London Zoo opening in 1828, Kew Gardens opens to the public in 1840. So there's a lot going on publicly as well. And in terms of geology specifically, which is the area I'm interested in, is it's becoming much more of a, of a profession. Before sort of 1850, there's very little formal teaching of geology But as we go into the sort of 19th century, it is emerging as a profession. You've got the Geological Society, as established in 1807, and the Geological Survey, which is a government department, in 1835. And by about 1830, we finally have what you would call sort of two professional geologists in the UK. So we've got Adam Sedgwick in Cambridge, who we'll come on to shortly, and also William Buckland in Oxford. So it's quite, there's quite a lot happening. It's quite a mixed picture. There's lots of connections and networking going on and opinions being expressed in more explicit terms. You've got organisations and societies becoming operational. And then you've got a sort of a public face to collecting with some of these museum spaces as well. The fact that people are even interested in this, mm. I think, is a very worthwhile point isn't it because they're really digging for knowledge at this time and there's a real genuine passion and interest for the natural world and moving out of this religious um, mindset and trying to understand the world in a way that is based on observation a bit like what Darwin was doing so yes but also we have this aspect of you know women being involved Mm. in this Mm. and Jane Neville being the wife of of Richard and um was her interest in collecting in the natural world sort of unusual for the time or 
No, I don't think it was unusual for a woman like Jane, from someone from her background, obviously with money and and time, she could show an interest and participate in these kinds of activities. I mean, one of her contemporaries is Barbara Hastings, the Marchioness of Hastings. She was also a fossil collector and geological author. So it was very sort of respectable for people like Jane to sort of take an interest in collecting in the natural world, particularly things like botany and geology, because you didn't need access to a laboratory or any kind of special equipment necessarily and you know of course women at this point were not opponents if you like in the sort of academic sense or they weren't in competition for any kind of jobs so in a sense yeah Jane was sort of it was not unusual in that sense and of course Jane had a privileged position in that she had the potential access to lots of books in Audley End Library which is fantastic and I've had a look at the list of some of the books that she may have had access to so things like Naturalis Historia by Pliny or Francis Bacon's Natural History Charles Lyell a famous Scottish geologist his Principles of Geology is quite a famous text as well as William Buckland's text on geology and mineralogy so she may have had access to some of these books which of course a lot of other women wouldn't have had access to um, you know if I think of Cambridge the University of Cambridge women students didn't actually get the right to become readers at the university library until the 1920s um, on the same basis as men so Jane had that sort of privileged position but if we look at the bigger picture with women um, there's a fantastic paper by an academic Martina Cope Elbert who calls it British geology in the early 19th century, a conglomerate with a female matrix. And what she's essentially saying is the conglomerate is the sort of the big lumps of sedimentary rock. So essentially all the men who are doing the geology. And then they're surrounded by what we call the matrix, the female matrix, which is the the sand and the clay, which is holding it all together. So essentially she's kind of saying the women were sort of, you know, helping move the geology along. So they were the authors, translators, collectors. They were assistants to their husbands and brothers. They were illustrators and distributors. So that's the sort of bigger picture of women at this time. And and one who comes to mind for me is Mary Anning, that famous fossilist down in Lyme Regis in Dorset. And we're very lucky to have some of her specimens at the Sedgwick Museum. But there are others as well. So it's, it's, I think, yes, Jane is in that very sort of privileged position and it wouldn't have been unusual for her, but it's a very mixed kind of picture generally. Obviously, university education is quite limited for women during this time. You know, in Cambridge, women aren't accepted as full members of the university until 1948 and women can't become fellows of the Geological Society until 1919. So I think, you know, there are lots more stories to uncover, I suspect, about Jane's interest and her knowledge But it's something, yeah, that I think, yeah, that I'm very interested in. Yes, and who Jane and her husband sort of Mm. met up with and spoke to and invited over to Audley End to inspect their collections, I suppose. One name you've mentioned is Adam Sedgwick, both of you. And obviously we're talking to Sandra, who's actually at the Adam Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge, So that's uh, one connection, obviously. But uh, did the Nevilles have connections with other professional researchers? And who wants to answer this one? But if I can just make a start with this one, because there was a very important connection with individuals and an institution or an emerging institution very locally. So um, Saffron Walden Museum was founded in 1833. And the Natural History Society in Saffron Walden was only established a year before in 1832. And when they proposed to establish a museum, 
Richard Neville granted permission for this building to be erected on land that he owned in the town. And remarkably, this same building is um, still used for the museum today. And the early registers documenting acquisitions at the museum suggest that Richard and Jane maintained an interest in the development of the collections, occasionally gifting objects. So in 1838, um, when Jane collected a piece of this remarkable oak tree called the Calthorpe Oak, she took another piece to the museum and added it to their collection. And then in 1847, Richard gave Saffron Walden Museum a large number of fossils and a cast of a celebrated fossil called Plesiosaurus Hawkinsi from the South Kensington Museum. And of course, as um, Sandra's mentioned already, a little bit further afield, but still relatively local, they enjoyed many connections with um, Cambridge University and their archival sources such as diaries and letters and visitor books, which give us an insight into these connections and enable us to know who was visiting Audley End in that capacity. Cambridge, of course, is the link with Adam Sedgwick, isn't it? Because obviously the Sedgwick Museum of Earth Sciences is is now in the city there. And we should also probably explain for people who aren't familiar with the geography that um, Saffron Walden Museum is in the town, the market town of Saffron Walden, which is just, well... Just a short walk, really. Ten ten minutes walk, if that, isn't it, from from Audley End? Yeah, absolutely. And then um, Cambridge is north of there? Yeah, so Cambridge is about... 20 miles is it Sandra I'm trying to think about that yeah it's not too mm. far away yes yeah, short mm. short train ride in fact actually in one of the diaries kept by Richard and Jane's daughter Lucy she mentions I think this is in the 1840s mentions going up to visit Sedgwick's museum yeah that's when it's at the Cockrell building yeah okay and he finally gets it... some space and that's in a different area of Cambridge is it the Cockrell building no that... that's in the centre of Cambridge that's where Sedgwick actually got some space finally to actually store the collections because up until that point most of the collections were in his rooms in college or in other places around the university so he finally gets space in about 1841 to show off the collections what does the building do these days it's actually part of Gonville and Keys College and actually is part of their beautiful library, actually. So what is now a library was actually where we showed off um, or Cedric showed off some of the really large specimens and things that were in the collection. Fascinating, but still a place of learning. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Still a place of learning. Yeah. Beautiful library, all the old manuscripts and also the archive for the college. But it's nice to know that as a family, they they were welcoming people like Cedric to Audley End. And then mm. as a family with all the children, we're going up to see his collections in Cambridge. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about this Adam Sedgwick. Sure. For people who don't know who he was, what was he? Yeah. So Sedgwick was actually a Yorkshireman. He was born in Dent, a little village, which is sort of the Yorkshire Dales now in Cumbria. And he was one of seven children of a local schoolmaster. But he came down to Cambridge and studied maths and theology at Trinity College And like many students of this time, he actually ordained as a priest and he was, as a fellow, he was barred from matrimony. The rules didn't change until the 1880s. But in 1818, Cedric took up what was known as the Woodwardian Chair of Geology, which is a a professorship, one of the very few in the country at the time. And Cedric was the seventh Woodwardian professor. The professorship it is named after Dr. John Woodward, who was a, a doctor of physic, but he also, like so many, collected fossils and rocks and minerals, shells and plants, to the sum of about 10,000 items. So he bequeathed most of that collection to the university in 1728, but also developed a professorship as well. So Cedric took that up in 1818. He was actually quite a surprising candidate because he wasn't a geologist 
by training. But he went on to build up the collections and acquired between 40 and 50,000 specimens by the 1840s. So he was quite prolific. As well as this, he undertook field work. And we are very lucky to have his field notebooks in the, the Sedgwick Museum archive. And this covers the period when he's essentially learning to be a geologist. So the notebooks cover the period from 1818 to 1850. And he personally collected about 1,200 rocks, minerals and fossil specimens during this period. Um, And as well as this, he's also lecturing and promoting the study of natural sciences. He actually lectured, I found this out recently, until he was 87 years old. So he was lecturing for a very long time, 51 years essentially without a break. And by all accounts, his, his lectures were very popular and they had a huge influence on generations of Cambridge students and essentially in sort of shaping the opinions on geology. And he also published a teaching syllabus as well in 1821 and 1832. So he was quite prolific and became well known in Cambridge and maintained correspondence with amateur gentlemen geologists as well as establishing the Cambridge Philosophical Society, which was um, Cambridge's oldest scientific society. So he was, yes, he was quite a busy person and and quite prolific in building up the collections of what would eventually become known as the Cedric Museum. Collections and connections. Yes. (laughs) Did he have um, connections to, of course, the world's most famous historical naturalist, Charles Darwin? Yes. What, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so of course, Darwin comes to Cambridge in the late 1820s, and his cousin is actually here at the time, William Darwin Fox, and he actually introduces Darwin to entomology, and Darwin ends up collecting sort of beetles. And it's it's through his cousin that Darwin actually becomes quite a close friend and follower of the botany professor John Stevens Henslow, who Peter's already mentioned. And it just turns out that John Stevens Henslow was Sedgwick's, Adam Sedgwick's hiking companion. So Henslow is actually the link here in that he persuades Adam Sedgwick to take Charles Darwin, who's only about, probably about 22 years old at the time. So he's very young and he encourages him to take him on his summer excursion to Wales, North Wales. And this trip was actually Sedgwick's first geological excursion to investigate the older rocks in Britain. And we actually have Sedgwick's field notebooks in the archive and he makes a note at the bottom of one page and he writes madripoors found by Mr Darwin. Madripoors are stony corals. So there are references in the archive. And Darwin reminisces later life about the trip and he says it's quite a memorable event in his life and he felt it a great honour and it really made him appreciate the noble science of geology. And of course, Darwin then goes on to his trip on the Beagle, spends a lot of his time investigating geology and making natural history collections. His collections of about 2,000 objects are kept at Down House initially and then they're donated to the Sedgwick Museum after Charles Darwin's death. And we actually opened a exhibition in 2009 to sort of celebrate Darwin as a geologist. And on display, we've actually got some of Darwin's, we've got a field notebook and we have a pistol that he carried on the Beagle and also hand lenses as well. And these are items on loan from from Down House in Kent. So, yes, there is quite a connection there between Charles Darwin and Adam Cedric. 
Yes, and we should say that Down House in Kent, of course, is an English heritage property and um, you can visit that, obviously. Um, We've been there a couple of times on the podcast. There are previous episodes that you can go back and listen to. But yes, fascinating that the two men are connected in that way and um, the items are sort of still being shared and experiences shared today. Would Sedgwick have been a good person for the Nevilles to know as well uh, with, with their sort of amateur collecting at Audley End? Yeah, I mean, Cedric was obviously quite an influential figure in this field of geology, and he published many papers, he corresponded with lots of many different people. He also had royal connections as well, of course. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert visited the collections at least a couple of times in the 1840s and came to see what Cedric had collected and what he had on display. And Cedric was also secretary to Prince Albert as well in his capacity as university chancellor. So yeah, he definitely would have been a good person for them for them to know. He lectured actually at the Saffron Walden Museum in the 1830s. So I wonder whether they actually went to that lecture. It was about three hours long by all accounts. So, so not <laughs> something you could just nip into <laughs> briefly, but yeah. And of course he visits Audley End in 1837 and 1838 to witness the opening of the large barrows in Essex. So yeah, so Cedric would have been absolutely a fantastic person for the Nevilles to know, I think, at this time. And when you say the opening of the barrows, what, what's that, what does that mean? So Cedric visits in the 1830s to see the barrows, which are situated on the estate of Viscount Maynard near Bartlow in Essex. And popular belief, belief had ascribed the erection of these sort of mounds to the Danes in commemoration of a battle. But when they were opened, they discovered sort of Roman antiquities, so coins, etc. And then they, they opened up the largest mound. And after 10 days labour, the central chamber was reached. And you had visitors from Cambridge basically at that opening to see what the contents were. So you've got Adam Sedgwick, you've got William Hule, who was the master of Trinity College. And again, the items proved to be Roman. And on this occasion, it's quite interesting, um, William Yule actually wrote a sort of little poem, quite a long poem, actually, um, in which Sedgwick is supposed to maintain that the the tumuli were were due to natural causes. But he does actually mention Jane in those as well. So he says, Lady Braybrook, O gentle swains, be for a moment mute, for here is that will settle your dispute. The spade proceeds, the earth is outward thrown, and now at last we find a bit of bone. And so it goes on. It's quite a few verses, but um, <laughs> it's quite interesting to see to see what happens when when Cedric visits. He sounds like a right character, um, <laughs> a bard as well as a, a naturalist and a collector. It's great when Lady Braybrook pops up, as Sandra yes. mentioned, though, because in this poem it's you get the sense of it's Gage and Sedgwick and they're having mm. this discussion and almost kind of arguing among themselves about what they're going to find and you know it's not it's not Richard Lord Braybrook who pops up it's Lady Braybrook because <laughs> you know it's her line and she's kind of saying you know, calm down it's like <laughs> these kind of unruly geologists and archaeologists and she's kind of at the centre kind of organising them all and Whipping telling them, them to... into shape so yeah exactly <laughs> yeah she comes across as a real character through that. the matriarch in the poem mm. yes absolutely Ah, That's really interesting. And interesting as well that uh, a Roman burial mound, um, we often associate these with the Neolithic, don't we? And prehistory. And they found uh, human remains, did they, as well? Well, the mounds contained cremated remains of high-ranking individuals and chambers filled with riches and treasures that once belonged to them. And this type of burial was popular 
during Roman occupied Britain. So it was really a, a treasure trove of all sorts of items within the barrows. One thing that we do know was this, the little dish at Audlien. So, mm. so in one of the cabinets, there's a little wooden dish that has, and it's a different kind of handwriting from Jane's. I, sus- I wonder if it's one of the children and it has Bartlow written on it. And it just seems to be little kind of odds and ends, nothing really much. So I wonder if it was one of the children who's kind of gone along with them and put these pieces in, but nothing's very spectacular compared to, you know, the other kinds of Roman finds they, they uncovered. Listening to what you've been saying there about the, the Roman mounds, does the Sedgwick Museum of Earth Sciences in Cambridge contain any of the Neville's collection today? Uh, do they swap sometimes items across the properties? Yeah, so I've been looking into this a little bit on our databases and at the moment nothing's sort of coming up to suggest there were any sort of, you know, gifts from the Neville or any kind of exchanges. But I think there's probably lots more research to be done here. We, we really need to look at Cedric's correspondence in a bit more detail. And also he kept these amazing little rough account books as well where he'd scribble down where he who he purchased items from and where he got things from. And he also had to keep official records as the Woodwardian professor. So he kept very good sort of audit records and reports, which I desperately want to spend some time going through in more detail. So essentially, yes, at the moment, there's no real record of anything between them, but you just never know. (laughs) No. And do we know how many times Sedgwick visited? Was it just the two times? At least a couple of times, yes. And he seems quite jolly on the second visit he writes a letter and says you know fancy me from Cambridge being in Audley End and 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 sort of you know having a good dinner with everyone and he's obviously really enjoyed his visits to Audley End but as far as I know there's probably only a couple I think and of course the lecture that he gives at Saffron Walden Museum as well so Mm. there are some visitor books which are in the Essex Mm. record office which we haven't gone through with a fine tooth comb yet so that would be really interesting to see if his name pops up again but there is quite a telling line in this letter I mentioned where Richard Neville is talking about the discovery of this mammoth tusk and bones and he he mentions Sedgwick particularly and Henslow and he says and you know my dinner hours so it suggests a kind of familiarity with things at Audley End Um, Mm. so yeah more work to be done there. Interesting and I suppose they would have called each other Mr and Mrs wouldn't they all the time it wouldn't be Christian names. I mean, you mentioned earlier that um, Mr. Darwin had 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 a find with Mr. Sedgwick, yes. and he's he's recorded as Mr. Darwin. He's not recorded yes, it's as quite Charles. Formal, even in the field mm. notebooks, when Sedgwick's meeting different people, and he meets many different people on his field excursions, his summer trips, but he always refers to them, yeah, sort of Mr. or, or Miss, because there's a reference to to Mary Anning in 1820. So it's after breakfast purchase fossils from Miss Anning. So yes, there's always that kind of, yeah, politeness. Politeness, formality and genteel, isn't it? Yes. Well, as we sort of begin to sort of wrap up our conversation, for visitors who'd like to come to Essex and and Audley End, can today's visitors, Peter, see any of the items in the Neville's collection in display cases in Audley End House? And are they the same cases that the Neville's would have had in, in their day? Yeah, they are the same cases, which is remarkable, really. And I think I mentioned before, they're virtually all still in the same locations. So it feels like a really authentic experience. And some of these cases are absolutely crammed full of things. So it takes a little bit of work to look quite carefully and work out what you're what you're looking at. And some of them are tucked away in fairly dark rooms. So it's a good idea to bring a torch and really peer into them. In fact, in the gallery with all the taxidermy, we have torches ready to give out to people so they can get a better look 
Oh, that's useful. Good. Mm. And that's okay, is it, to shine light on some of these objects? Yeah, I mean, it's fine with modern, certain types of kind of modern LED lights. The thing that's really damaging that we have to be very careful with is natural sunlight, because it's the um, UV rays which are damaging, particularly for Mm. things like birds and very colourful feathers, you know, more so than geology collections. I can imagine, yes, yes. As soon as you get sunlight onto anything, it just starts to fade it, doesn't it? Yeah, in the same way as, you know, fabric might fade. It's the same with kind of fur and feathers. And leathers as well. And And paper, unfortunately. So labels and things like that, yeah, can be affected. As for Audley End's collection, I understand that you're currently working through the collections to learn more about the objects and uncover their stories. So how is this going, Peter? And what have you discovered so far? Yeah, that's right. We're still cataloguing these items. There's a huge amount of work still to be done. And while part of that work is obviously to simply identify what individual specimens are, I think that contextualising them and uncovering the kind of stories that we've been talking about today is a really important part of that work too. And in terms of the most interesting thing we've discovered so far, I I think probably is, is just this role that Jane played in all of this. It's never really been remarked upon before or no no one's said anything about this or kind of positioned her in that way and it would be so easy to assume that Richard as a man and Lord Braybrook was the you know key player and she was just on the sidelines but it actually seems that she was really a driving force and commanded some respect in this environment which as, as Sandra has mentioned was heavily dominated by men so I think that's really you know a fascinating aspect of all of this. The final point you, I guess, you were making there was that you're most interested in the female history side of things then, in learning more about the collection. That's an aspect that can be explored more deeply. I think so. Just generally speaking, Jane isn't written about at all. And, you know, whether that's in our guidebook or our interpretation on site, not just about natural history, but anything, you know, in the context of a large country house like this, you tend to hear about the male owner and it's kind of always framed in that way. So, People don't know much about her at all. And so it's something that, you know, we at English Heritage are keen to do anyway, uncovering the stories of marginalised women in history. So it's brilliant that we found out that actually here is someone who we have this you know, recorded history of her being involved in something very interesting and very important. And to me, that's that's really exciting. We've got that evidence and we can take that further now. What next for visitors? What can they expect if they're listening to this in the summer season of 2023? Um, Will they get to find out a bit more? Will there be new and never-before-seen objects going on display? Will you be sorting out some cases? Absolutely. We Well, one of the things we will be doing is we have our conservators and conservation assistants doing what we call conservation in action, where they're cleaning specimens and so they're taking things out of cabinets and people can see that work happening and it's a chance to talk about individual items. We also are kind of training up some of our room stewards to be able to point out key items to share with people. So really just need to talk to people when you come to visit Audley End and ask them if you're interested in this and then people will be absolutely delighted to tell you more and show you some of the specimens. Do you get to visit often, Sandra? No, sadly not. But I had a lovely visit earlier this year with Peter, who was very generous with his time and showed me around. So it was it was lovely to see the collections in situ in the cases and to contemplate 
how the Nevilles went about collecting and who did the labelling and and to think more a bit about Jane, as Peter says, I think that's quite interesting. I think you had a recent podcast talking about women and women's history. And I think one of the people involved with that said something about women have always been there. And I think that's something to bear in mind. So that's something I'm quite interested in. So I'm looking forward to learning more in due course. Well, hopefully we can find out a bit more and do an update on a future episode. Great. Thank you both for talking to us. It's been really interesting to talk about the sort of science of collecting within this period and also just the family history and also the women's history that's tied up within the general story. So there's lots of themes and strands and um, various places all interconnecting. And I think that brings a, a real rich dimension to the whole story. So thank you. No, absolutely. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about the fourth largest city in Roman Britain, Roxeter, where a new project is helping to share the site's stories. The museum has been redone from scratch. New cases, new text panels, very fun interactives. The audio guide is new, and the education suite has also been redecorated and its contents refreshed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.